Vagina, vagina, vagina. <laughs> we're getting real cash. <laughs> Today, we're talking about booze, alcohol, drinking, how much is too much, and the health implications that it has for women in particular. We also have a really amazing interview with a woman who is now 20 years sober, but who drank heavily throughout her two pregnancies. Um, she has a son, actually, with fetal alcohol syndrome, and she's going to talk to us about what it was like to really live that experience. Um, we, we heard her speak at a conference and we're so impressed with her candidness and yeah. honesty about the whole experience and feel like we had a lot to learn from her as providers. So we, Absolutely. we know you all too. All right, but first, the news. My turn first? Erica, I need to go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hold on. You ready? Don't look. Don't look at my notes. Okay, okay. hold on. Because I want you to like hear it from my mouth and be surprised. Just close your eyes. Okay. Because I want you to imagine this. Okay. I'm ready. Close your eyes. Okay. You may have heard. <laughs> Probably not. 2018's worst costume of the year, and perhaps the worst costume of all time for Halloween, Sexy Handmaid. What? No, here's a picture. Like Handmaid's Tale? Yes. <laughs> sexy Handmaid's Tale. Like, sexy There's handmaid's... so many things look, wrong with that. Look, she's wearing a sexy silk red cape. With a mini skirt dress underneath it and cleavage showing. And she's got that little white hat on and, of course, black stilettos. Wait. Okay. Do... <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know whether this is, like, hilarious or incredibly offensive or actually, like, spot on because it kind of, like, you know, it's, like, ironic. Like, this would never fly in Gilead. Anyway. Okay, but they have a sexy take on it. Um, which again, I can't decide if it's offensive or just like right on par with like how I, you know, like ironic given that this is like what everything that Gilead's not supposed to be. Anyway, whatever. Wait, can I interject with feminist Halloween costume ideas? Did you just recently, you just like Googled that I after I showed you the picture? Okay, fine. What do you have? Well, no, but I think we Feminist could, Halloween costume? I think we could come, I think we could come up with some too. Okay, ready? Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, on my list. Frida Kahlo. Oh, you've done list. that. I've done it a number of times. I'm going to post that to the Institute so you can see my different takes on it. Does Daenerys count? Sure. She's I think a badass. She's, yeah. yeah. Um, Maxine Waters. I really liked those costumes last year. Maxine, I don't know what those are. The Maxine Waters costumes? It's she's not really a costume. She's a sender. Yeah, I know, but what? how do you make it a costume? You just look She just had like and a, sassy. Yeah, and had a sign that said, I'm taking my time. Uh, nice, nice. Okay. Um, this website that I just Googled uh, also suggests Cookie and Empire. I haven't seen that show. What? <laughs> I've seen a show you haven't seen. <laughs> I don't know. Wait, don't know. it's so good. You Wait, should watch can I tell that. you what my three-year-old's going to be this year? Miss Frizzle. Oh, From, I love yeah. Miss Frizzle. Miss Frizzle, and we're going to be her school bus. Oh, my gosh, that's I know, really it's good. amazing. Okay, what do you got? I'm, we're going to be Moana, my family, oh. all of Moana. That's good. Be, That's feminist. I'm going to be Tahiti. Like, I've got a really long green wig. You need to... Oh, interesting. I just want to wear a wig. Okay. A long green wig. Okay, great. Um, okay. You know, the funny thing is, is I was actually going to dress up as a handmaid, because I thought that was, like, you know, cool. A sexy handmaid? Now it's ruined. Now look at this. Oh, Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet. How do you do that costume? I look really badass. I mean... 
She had that like like her album cover with the net over her face. Do you know what oh I mean? yeah, yeah. Or you could dress up as a vagina, like in her video pink. Mm, amazing. You're right. Why am I even asking how to do that? <laughs> have you not seen that music video? Yeah, we should be Great. vaginas. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you have? Do you want to hear? My news seems yeah. really inconsequential in comparison. Really? To a no. sexy handmaid? What do you got? Um, I have news about a new type of birth control. What? Yeah, a new type of birth control. That just was kidding, just... I already know. That was like my fake surprise. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, but our listeners may not know. Okay. So, just recently approved by the FDA is a one-year vaginal ring. One year? Yes. <laughs> that you can keep. <laughs> you keep it for one year. You don't leave it in for the entire year. You Get only... out! You just put it in for 21 days to one month and then... Take it out. But you can reinsert it instead of buying a new ring. Never buy a new ring. Never buy a new ring. <laughs> so this new vaginal contraceptive ring, which is called Enovera, made by popu- the Population Council, um, contains a new type of progesterone called suggesterone. As- so, wait, suggesterone? Suggesterone. Suggesterone. It's not S-U-G-G. Suggesterone. It's, S- <laughs> it's S-E-G. But yeah, suggesterone. Okay. Um... And patients are instructed to insert the ring for 21 days, mm-hmm. continuously remove it for a seven-day interval. Only seven days. And then wash it, wash clean it, it make put sure it back you wash in. It. Don't put a dirty ring in. It provides enough medication for 13 28-day cycles, or one year of use. That's a lot. It does not require any refrigeration. You could just keep it with you. Don't and refrigerate your contraception. At least this one. This one. <laughs> and... Like like the um, contraceptive ring, the Nuva ring already available, it shouldn't be removed for more than two hours at a time, except during that seven-day seven, seven day period. Um, and it has an efficacy rate of over 97%, which is Don't kind of amazing. Don't have sex for more than two hours at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Without your ring in. You could have sex with the ring in. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. In fact... Although, can I tell you a funny story about that? <laughs> yes. This one time, I had a patient who... Um, had a vaginal ring and didn't tell her partner that she had gotten a vaginal ring. I already ring. know where this is going. Did I already tell you this story? No, but I just feel He it. all of a sudden, like, got this look of shock on his face and, <gasps> like, pulled his penis out, and there was the ring all the way around his penis. It had somehow That's twisted. That's not the right spot for that ring. <laughs> this is not the right spot for this ring. But he thought that she was, like, trying to play a trick on him or, like, oh you know, gosh. like a practical joke. Anyway. Hopefully she put it back in within two yeah, hours. she did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, the ring, not the penis. I mean, maybe both. Who knows? Well, good for her. Okay, back to the topic at hand. So, um, compared with men, at-risk alcohol use by women has a disproportionate effect um, on their lives and their health, including reproductive function and pregnancy outcomes. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism defines, quote, at-risk alcohol use for healthy women as three drinks on one occasion or more than seven drinks per week, or any amount of alcohol for women who are pregnant or at risk of pregnancy. And this at risk of pregnancy is a little, was very controversial when they came out with this terminology because technically many, many women are at risk of pregnancy and should we really be regulating their alcohol intake? Right. They also define binge drinking as um, more than three drinks per occasion. Um, And almost 50% of binge drinking occurs among otherwise moderate drinkers. So moderate drinking is defined as one drink per day, but I think when you're looking at these definitions, we really need to talk about like what a drink is. So um, this is per the ACOG, or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Practice Bulletin. 
Um, definition of drinks. So one standard drink is equal to 15 milliliters of pure ethanol. So oh, um, I know what that means. Yeah. I can't picture that at oh, all. Yeah, you can picture. Okay, so in 15 other words, 15 milliliters. One glass of beer or one wine cooler is 12 ounces of pure ethanol. Um, table wine, um, five ounces. So like a 25 ounce bottle is usually about five drinks if you drink the whole bottle. If you drink the whole bottle, you know. you're binge drinking. If you drink the whole bottle, you're, you're binge drinking. Um, malt liquor, eight to nine ounces. A 12 ounce can of that is one and a half drinks, technically. So if you're drinking malt liquor, Wait, you're not... Wait, what's malt liquor? Is that just liquor? Malt liquor. No, it's like, um, malt liquor. I don't know. Uh, what's that famous brand? You know, like college kids drink it. You, Edward Forty Hands, you know that game? Oh, yeah. Malt liquor. Mm. I, I thought this that is, that, okay. that You Edward, usually drink it in a bag? I think... Edward Forty Hands is. Beer. No, I think you do it with malt liquor because you have uh, whatever. Anyway, We're not really. someone please let us know. Um, and then eighty proof spirits, like one point five ounces. So a mixed drink. If you've got like um, a mixed drink with one shot of vodka, that's you know one drink. But a lot of times these drinks have more than one shot, so technically that could be one to three drinks for a cocktail, depending on how you dress it up. A two thousand and nine national survey from the Centers for Disease Control found that about a quarter of individuals ages eighteen to twenty four reported binge drinking. And of these individuals, the majority were white, non Hispanic college graduates who had an average household income greater than fifty thousand dollars per year. And among women who eighteen to thirty four years old who binge drink, approximately one third report drinking eight or more drinks per occasion. Thirty percent of people drink eight or more drinks. No, well, like I guess among if you... women who binge drink. Oh, among, okay. Oh, okay. I get that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if you're counting, like, one cocktail, like, three drinks, yeah, I could see how that would happen if you're, I mean, depending on what you're drinking. Anyway, there are a lot of ways to break down the at-risk drinking and alcoholism definitions, especially in terms of um, ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic risk. But I think what's more important here in the message that we really want to communicate as providers is that this can happen to anyone. People from all backgrounds, all social classes can be affected and can be at risk. So it's really important um, for us to not stereotype or to make assumptions. And I think that most people listening to this will relate to that, that they're, everyone knows someone in their life who has an alcohol abuse problem. Absolutely. It's uh, like on a very serious note, it okay. is something that everyone relates to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can think of people in my family, in my friend group, um, yeah, it's, all of the above. Yeah, yeah, all of the above. Talking about alcohol is tough because we can't ignore the fact that for many people, alcohol can be a pleasant experience. It's a method of relaxation and social connection. Um, it also offers some beneficial cardiovascular effects sure. potentially. One glass of wine at night. We've you know red wine in particular. There's plenty of studies showing that there's benefits of red wine. Um, but on the other end of that, women are particularly vulnerable to some of the physical and psychosocial effects of alcohol, and that's why this is such an important topic to discuss. Alcohol-related mortality represents the third leading cause of preventable death for women in the United States. At-risk alcohol use results in many, many different health effects, so um, beyond the obvious. Um, in terms of like medical and physical risks, um, unplanned pregnancy, right? You're intoxicated, you aren't protecting yourselves, STDs, altered fertility, menstrual disorders. This is all just like, you know, reproduction-related, but Injuries, trauma, seizures, malnutrition, cardiovascular or heart problems. Cancer in general increases the risk of breast cancer, liver cancer, rectum, mouth, throat, esophagus. And then there's all the psychological problems that can happen. So loss of relationships, sexual assault, loss of income, child neglect, abuse, loss of a child custody mm. situation, um, domestic violence. 
uh, altered judgment for sure, um, depression, suicide. So there's a lot of different things that can happen um, with at-risk drinking and, and women in particular are more at risk of those things. And I think we sometimes forget as providers how well women who have alcohol dependency problems really can cover it up. Oh yeah, and how, absolutely. And how important it is not to make assumptions about this because even like many of these things are sort of late, late yeah. um, right. effects of, of alcohol abuse problems. When we think of people who have a problem with alcohol, we often think of like degenerate people or people in the gutters and, and that's not true. There's a whole you know population of people who are functional alcoholics and have high powered jobs and you know maybe they're like head of the PTA or someone you would never mm-hmm. expect um, but they just hide it really well. Yeah. Um, until until they're not functional. Until right? you're not, that's, yeah. yeah. That's why it's important. Um, so women who drink between two and five drinks per day have up to a 40% increased risk of breast cancer. And this risk increases linearly with consumption throughout this range. Breast cancer, I feel like, is one of those things that it's worth pointing out because it's one of the cancers that gets the most media attention and the most financial support. Um, you We've know, talked about this from, before, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's also one of these cancers that people have a lot of compassion for. But alternatively, people don't have a lot of compassion for people who are suffering with alcoholism or alcohol Mm -hmm. disorder. And the two are actually linked in some situations. So um, interesting to point out. I also think it's interesting when we talk about breast cancer risk for things like birth control pills or other things like that. People get really worried about any sort of increased risk. But then when you're like, well, if you stop drinking, you would decrease your alcohol risk of breast cancer. These things aren't separate silos. They're all together. Right. Right. And that sometimes people just... They're like, oh, I'll definitely, I never want to be on any hormones, but don't take away my My, glasses of wine. My vodkas, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about um, alcohol in pregnancy, because this is a topic that I think is especially important, slash doesn't get enough attention, and about which there is a lot of controversy. But first, I want to be very clear. There is no documented or agreed upon safe amount of alcohol in pregnancy, and alcohol is absolutely... um, no doubt about it, a teratogen, or meaning potentially a toxic substance for fetuses. But that being said, there is disagreement even in the medical community about the effects of small amounts of alcohol or um, alcohol late in pregnancy. Yeah, and I think this is something that when I counsel people about it um, in pregnancy, I often get asked about my own experiences Mm -hmm. of alcohol in pregnancy and like my own choices about alcohol, which I think you know, in pregnancy, it's still your body, even though you're sharing it, you're, you still get to make those choices about your body. And we shouldn't be taking those choices away from pregnant women. For me, myself, I am like a little bit of an anxious person and Mm -hmm. I didn't want there to be any, anything wrong that I could then connect back to a glass of alcohol. Like something you did. Yeah. Yeah. And I just felt like to me that honestly, like that anxiety is not worth it. And so I have not drank in any, in either of my pregnancies. And that's been a choice that I feel good about for me. But I also have good friends who are OBGYNs who had a glass of wine a week through the end, the last few months of their pregnancy. Yeah. Knowing all the same data I know. Right. When I think about it also, um, especially in the early part of pregnancy when like the, the organs are developing, um, I, I have like a zero tolerance policy. Absolutely no. I feel like that's the time at which the fetus is most vulnerable. Um, and my recommendations to people when they ask me in the office, because they always, you know, people always yeah. ask, will always be what I said before, which is 
there is no safe amount, yeah, right? That's just, the message I have to keep communicating to people. And, um, and do we also know, like, there is there is there any safe amount? We also don't have the question. We don't know that question. We don't too. know, and and that's sort of the point here. We don't know if there's a safe amount. We don't know what it is. We don't know. We don't really know a lot. And I think the um, as the people who are charged with taking care of you and your and your baby. It is then we have to do the most conservative thing and say, well, then just don't drink, right? Because why would you take that risk? But that being said, we're also acknowledging that, I don't know, maybe there is a tiny amount that's fine and we just don't know about. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We just don't know. So along those lines, um, we found a really interesting study that was just published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's sort of like our big journal. Um, Researchers from Ireland, England, New Zealand, and Australia um, compared the birth outcomes of over 5,000 women who were pregnant and more than half of them reported drinking during the first three months of pregnancy. That's that time where I'm like, no, no, absolutely no. I mean, but often also time when women don't really realize they're pregnant. True, true. Which is like, sort of, um, un, un yeah, helpful. Well, and also you're looking at like a European, well, an Australian population here too. I think just drinking cultures are different around the mm-hmm. world. Um, but a quarter of those people who drank reported low alcohol consumption. Um, or just three to seven drinks per week, and another 15% reported having more than seven drinks a week, which, you know, that's a lot. We also know that in some countries in Europe, they're like Ireland, which I think is like always given as the example, there are higher rates of fetal alcohol syndrome. So while there are higher rates of drinking in pregnancy, there are also higher rates of fetal alcohol syndrome. Well, and that's interesting you point that out, though, because this study was looking at premature birth, babies with low birth weight or small size, and then also preeclampsia, which is this potentially life-threatening condition in the mother um, that has to do with high blood pressure. Um, And they found no... Th- that these rates were similar across all of these categories. Of these specific outcomes. Of these specific outcomes. But um, when we're thinking about drinking in pregnancy, we aren't often thinking about, like, oh, am I going to get preeclampsia? Or, oh, is my baby going to be born a little early? The, the big thing you're thinking about is this fetal alcohol syndrome, or at least the scariest. And sort of the spectrum of fetal alcohol syndrome disorders, which yeah. is there is, like, a very specific fetal alcohol syndrome diagnosis but then the whole sort of spectrum of fetal alcohol-related birth defects are so much more subtle and complex than that. Sometimes facial abnormalities, mm-hmm. sometimes behavioral abnormalities, which right. can be really conf- confusing because obviously those can have a lot of reasons. One thing I think about always with alcohol, which like has some reason for some reason stuck in my head in pregnancy, is so have you ever read the book 1984? No. Oh I know gosh. I was supposed to in high school, right? It's yeah. one of those. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't ever. So it's a dystopia book. It's a classic book that I you should dystopia probably read. Books. I love that you're sad that I haven't seen Gia, but you haven't read 1984. I'm going to read it someday. <laughs> I don't know. But there's a movie, too. <laughs> I'll um, watch the movie. I'll watch the But movie. what they do, basically, in this dystopian universe is in order to create, like, the different... Um, like, levels of society, like, the really powerful people, like, a little Stop bit less. It. They, all people are created in test tubes, and they add in a little bit of alcohol <gasps> for, like, the next level, and they add in really? a little bit more alcohol for the lower levels. And even though, like, George Orwell, who's the writer of 1984, is not an OBGYN, but I always, no, like, that not. really stuck in my head as, like, all these people being created in their jars in 1984 are the same, and then they create this, like, intellectual class system based on adding alcohol. Wait, when was this book written? Way before 1984. 1984 is the future. Right, this is why I say this, because back in the day, like 60s, 70s, all the way through this, mm, I don't know when they stopped doing this, 70s at least, when women came in in preterm labor, 
to stop the preterm contractions, they would give them an IV drip of straight alcohol. So this was probably the practice when George Orwell was writing this. That is he didn't care. But I think people still like saw the effects of alcohol. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, that anyway. image is just like stuck in my head and I keep thinking like, why would I add those drops to my baby? Interesting. Which is like a total sci-fi way to and think about it. And also a drop of alcohol is, is not going to change. Well, my baby's also not being created in a test tube, right? Okay, that's true. <laughs> anyway, um, so for every kid born with fetal alcohol syndrome, many more are born with um, neurobehavioral defects that are caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. But alcohol-related birth defects um, include things like growth deformities, facial abnormalities like you mentioned, central nervous system, um, behavioral disorders, impaired intellectual development, and they don't always go together too. Sometimes people have like that classic appearance, um, but other times they look totally normal and they have all this stuff on the inside and you'd never know. And alcohol can affect a fetus at any stage of pregnancy and the cognitive effects, defects and behavioral problems that result from prenatal alcohol exposure are lifelong. Um, so in early pregnancy, we talked about this, there's the formation of organs and that's really when we think fetal alcohol syndrome um, is, is a result of pregnancies that are affected early and often by alcohol. Um, but the brain and central nervous system is developing all the way up until the end of pregnancy, and so even moderate alcohol consumption could potentially alter psychomotor development, cognitive defects, emotional and behavioral problems. Um, but it's really hard to measure because patient denial and underreporting make yeah. it difficult to quantify these effects. And right. then also in studies that are retrospective, where we ask people who have children with behavioral problems if they drink, we know oh, people yeah. with, with children with behavioral problems are much more likely to try to find a reason. Right. Um, kind of like what I was talking about before, yeah. like find that glass of wine they can blame. Right, right. Um, and then this issue like later on in pregnancy, what about if you drink later in pregnancy? We again don't have you know clear data for any of this, but there was one study we found that indicated that the highest um, prevalence of late pregnancy alcohol use is actually tends to be among women who are white, non-Hispanic graduates, college graduates, um, and 35 or older. But interestingly, these are the exact same women who are more likely to have le uh, less counseling and less screening for alcohol by their healthcare providers. I think because people just automatically assume, oh, you're high functioning, you're successful. You this, must this not won't be an be alcoholic. An issue. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not true. And there, what, there has been this sort of like, sort of quote old wives tale that alcohol consumption can help with breastfeeding. Yeah. And yeah, some yeah. of that comes from when Guinness in Ireland had like actual folic acid and other things in it that was somewhat oh, is that nutritional. What it was? Interesting. Um there like beer was, you know, has yeast in it. It's yeah. somewhat nutritional in a place sure. where you're otherwise not getting Nutrition. Nutrition. I don't um, know. However <laughs> when, when you have no food you only have Guinness. <laughs> you only have Guinness. <laughs> however um, there's consistent evidence showing that when breastfeeding mothers consume alcohol, there's actually reduced milk consumption by the infant. Um, and alcohol consumption during lactation is associated with altered postnatal growth, sleep patterns, and psychomotor patterns of the offspring, which is a little bit hard because also if your baby's not sleeping well, you may be more interested in drinking. Driven to drinking, yeah. It's a little this bit This is tricky. interesting. So when I was postpartum with my first daughter um, and having some... Um, lactation issues. The lactation um, counselor or person actually told you drink. Told me drink. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Did they give a reason? Yeah, said it would help bring the milk in. But I mean, like, how? I don't know. Oh, so and I was like so a... desperate in that moment. Yeah, 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 for sure. She was like, "Go get beer right now." 
Okay, but what about if you are drinking um, in the postpartum period? Like, so say you're breastfeeding also and you're drinking, how long are you supposed to wait? So generally a good rule of thumb is that you wait about three to four hours after a single drink, that's just one drink before you breastfeed your infant. Um, and that at that point, with the metabolism of the alcohol, the infant's exposure is supposed to be negligible, but um, there are things you can do too. There are tests you can do, like take drops of your milk and, and test it on test strips to see, to make sure there's no uh, measurable amount of alcohol. Um, and then also another good rule of thumb that I like to tell people is that if you feel mm -hmm. tipsy, like if you feel the alcohol in any way, do not breastfeed, P pump and dump that. Yeah, and I think one one thing to remember about breast milk is it's about the same serum alcohol uh, alcohol content as your blood level, and so when you're, um, like Jen was saying, if you're feeling tipsy, then your blood alcohol level is probably elevated, elevated yeah. and your the breast milk is about that same level. So instead of if your blood alcohol level is like point. 08, right? That's like yeah. the legal limit of driving in most states. Then that's going to be the level of alcohol in your breast milk. So instead of having a drink that's whatever, 40% alcohol, which is like a shot, your baby is getting a drink that is 0.08% alcohol. Yeah. But it, your baby's a baby and has a baby liver. Yeah. And so it's processing uh, that liver, drink liver. with 0.08% alcohol. Mm. So now is a good time to take a break. We're gonna hear, um, again, this story from this woman who has lived this experience, who has three kids and drank very heavily with two out of the three children. Um, her second child has fetal alcohol syndrome and she is gonna share her experience. My name is Julene Zitza, and I am the mother of three children. I currently reside in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I am the mother of a son with fetal alcohol syndrome. He is now 20 years old, and my story really starts out um, when I first got married uh, when I was 23. I knew that I wanted to have children. And so after a couple years of marriage, we decided that we would um, have a child. And my drinking had been heavy, and I always thought that I would be able to stop drinking. But once I became pregnant, I quickly realized that I would not be able to stop drinking. And so I did not tell my husband immediately that I was pregnant because I was still drinking and I knew he would want me to stop. So eventually I knew I had to tell him that I was pregnant. And so I told him I was pregnant. We were very happy, very excited. But I knew deep in my heart that I could not stop drinking. And that was a shock to me. So I went to my OBGYN she asked if I consumed alcohol, and I told her no. So I continued to hide pregnancy as much as I could. I mean, excuse me, hide the drinking as much as I could. But as a daily drinker and a person who gets drunk every night, um, my drinking was very obvious to those in the house, and my husband knew that I was getting drunk every night. So the end of the pregnancy... I did give birth to a healthy little girl. She was small for size. She was five pounds, 11 ounces. 
and all that the pediatrician asked was, did you smoke during pregnancy? And I said no, because I had not. But nobody ever asked me about drinking. So we were very happy as a couple that the baby had been born, but I continued to drink. I even drank while breastfeeding her, and this would help her stop crying in the evening because I would drink in the evenings and then breastfeed her and it would put her to bed every night. So three years later, I decided that I wanted to have a second child and my husband wasn't too confident in that because I was still getting drunk every night, but eventually we did conceive a second child. I did not stop drinking during the second pregnancy either because I knew I couldn't stop and I did not try to stop. But three years later, my alcoholism had increased and I had doubled my alcohol intake every day. I was still drinking on a daily basis and this went on for many months during the pregnancy. I still told my OBGYN that I did not get a drunk, let alone drink, and I was a high-functioning alcoholic where I could run a household um, to all our friends. Everything appeared normal. Um, we were highly successful. I am well-educated. He is well-educated. We earn a reasonable amount of money, live in a good neighborhood, had good employment, and once I was about five, six months into the pregnancy, finally my husband told my OBGYN that I was drinking uncontrollably and that I needed help. She was a good woman, and she uh, tried to get me into some outpatient treatment. Uh, the outpatient treatment program was not a good fit for me because as soon as you drink an outpatient program, they kick you out. And because I could not stop drinking, they kicked me out. So that avenue was um, closed off to me. Um, as I became more uh, of a high-risk case, um, they ran more tests on my son and discovered that um, he had um, a ventric ventricular septal defect. So I was sent to a cardiac unit um, neonatal cardiac unit up in Portland, Oregon, and they would wait to do surgery after he was born, but that just added to the stress and the shame and the guilt and everything else, which made stopping drinking even more difficult. So my son, uh, they were going to induce me because by the time I was 38 weeks, they said he was going to be as big as he was going to be. Uh, he was born and he was put into ICU and um, he was born at four pounds, eight ounces. And he was within 24 hours diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, which really wasn't a surprise because I was consuming 33 servings of an alcoholic beverage a day. And at that time I was drinking vodka. So the process of dealing with a child with fetal alcohol syndrome was very um, challenging. I was, I was very suicidal upon his birth. Um, 
because of the guilt and the shame. And I was put into a mental hospital for the first couple days until a treatment center bed could be made available. And I pretty much had to agree to go to treatment, which at that point I was agreeable to. And my son, John Franco, had to be drip-fed 24 hours a day, which is what my mother-in-law did while I was in treatment. She um, drip-fed him from a special bottle because he couldn't suck because he was too weak. I had all of the guilt and shame of having a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. Plus I had a daughter who was turning three. We worked hard at keeping John Franco literally alive, trying to get him bigger. He was considered a failure to thrive because he had to be drip fed and um, he couldn't um, drink directly from my breast because it consumed too many calories for him to suck. So he could only swallow from this special bottle that just dripped. He didn't have to suck on the bottle, it just dripped one drop at a time so he could just swallow because we had to calculate exactly how many calories he consumed by his heart having to have the hole in the heart with this um, the inefficiency of his bodily functions we made it through the open heart surgery at three months and lots of family came in to help support but also judge me for the reason why we were all there So John Franco is now 20 years old. He has gone through the public education system. He has an IQ between 46 and 55. He functions, he's ambulatory. Uh, He walks and he talks and he laughs and he has a wonderful sense of humor. He's also an untreated alcoholic. He's never chosen to take a drink in his life, but he is very angry. Um, and volatile and aggressive and violent when he doesn't get his way, just like any alcoholic who's not getting his next fix is. You will go between the highs of, I love you, Mom, to the next minute, I hate you, Mom, and I'm going to kill you, Mom, and he'll come at you with knives and kick you and threaten you and... And so he, he is um, a dichotomy and takes a lot of love and nurturing and 24-hour care. He does get line-of-sight supervision at all times because he does not have good social boundaries. Because of his low IQ, he does not know strangers. So he's very vulnerable in that sense. But he's also very loving. And he will give women compliments and love and hugs and kisses And although that seems very sweet, he's now 20 years old. And what was very cute for an eight or a nine-year-old to say, oh, you're beautiful, to have a 20-year-old walk up to an unknown woman and say, you're beautiful, can be taken the wrong way. And so therefore, he has to have supervision so that he does not violate anyone's personal space John Franco has the traditional face of fetal alcohol syndrome, and most affected people do not. That means I consumed enough alcohol on the 20th day that he has the traditional facial features, um, which means he has a small head, he has a flattened upper lip, he has a small lip, he has small eyes, 
Um, those are some of the, just the characteristic features. It's a, it's, he has the brain damage, of course, but it's also a midline disease, which is why the heart is affected. And he's also got some internal structures, which is part of the midline, but you don't see those. So it is a gift that he has a face that looks different. And so therefore people can see that he looks different. And then it's obvious that he's a little quirky and that there's something different. Most people who have been affected by alcohol or have F an FASD do not have a different face. That All that means is that they didn't have that alcohol consumption on the 20th day of pregnancy, and they do not have the face, but they still have the brain damage behind the face. So their quirky behaviors or inappropriate behaviors or lack of mathematical skills are still there. They just, the body doesn't look different. And therefore, people pass judgment as to what's wrong with this person or why can't they understand cause and effect. John Franco doesn't understand cause and effect, but you can empathize because he looks different and you can understand, well, this person obviously has a disability. If they walk and talk and look just like you and I, you're going to think, what's wrong with this person? Why can't they learn from their mistakes? Police officers don't understand. They just incarcerate them. The person gets out, they do the exact same behavior again. Why can't you learn from your mistakes, the judge says. And the person says, what mistakes? And the judge throws him in, the, in jail again. It's that same cycle of they can't learn from cause and effect because of the brain damage. I think a big misconception is that all alcoholics are low-functioning. You know, many of us are are well-educated, high-functioning, hold down jobs, um, married, have children, take our kids to sporting events, <laughs> put our kids in private lessons, you know, went to prestigious universities, have graduate degrees, are on boards, active members of our community. I came from a good home with educated parents, <laughs> with graduate degrees, you know, I... Um, I would have never pegged myself as an alcoholic as a, as a kid. Um, that's not a goal I set for myself, but clearly I um, have had the propensity for it. And once I took that first drink when I was 14, um, there was no going back. We have a saying in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, that you don't really get sober until you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Continuing to drink during my second pregnancy took a lot of effort because I was very sick to try to drink alcohol, which my body was rejecting, and to continue to drink while my body was rejecting it. I mean, I was just sick all the time. On the day that was to be my son's birthday, I just knew that things were going to be different. I mean, I, I remember thinking that morning, things are going to change today, and should I have a drink, can I handle it? And I told myself, I'm not going to drink today. And that's the first time in my life that I was ever, ever able to not drink. Why I could do it that day and not the day before or the umpteen days before that, I don't know. But on that day, I was able to say, no, I'm not going to drink anymore. And I'm very grateful because now I can take care of my son. And so my son is well aware of his fetal alcohol syndrome. And he will tell me, Mom, this is all your fault. 
And I do say, John Franco, you are correct. This is all my fault. But you know what? You are the one who got me sober, and I am very grateful that you are born. But we are a team, and what can we do together to get through this? Because I love you, and together we can do anything. Such a powerful story. As always, we are so happy to hear um, people's stories who've actually gone through it. I wanted to um, sort of wrap this up, Erica, by talking about the TACE screening tool. This is a, a tool that we often use in medicine, but that you can use with um, yourself or someone you know if you're kind of questioning, well, like, gosh, do I drink too much? Like, what's mm -hmm. going on? So TACE, T-A-C-E, is an acronym, and it stands for Tolerance, Annoyed, Cut Down, and Eye Opener. And these are questions that you ask yourself to see, like, do I have this problem? So the T for tolerance is how many drinks does it take to make you feel the effects of alcohol or make you feel good? If you have more than two drinks, then it's two points. Okay. A is for annoyed. So if people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking, yes, one point. Okay. C is cut down. Have you ever felt like you should cut down on your drinking? If you answered yes, one point. E is for eye-opener, which is, have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or get rid of a hangover? Yes, one point. If you have two points or more, you have a positive screening for at-risk drinking. So really, if you answer yes to tolerance or more or any of the other questions, you may have a drinking problem. And, other, and you're not alone in that. Um, and other questions to ask to sort of add to that are, in a typical week, how many drinks do you have that contain alcohol? Um, if you say seven or more drinks, then you're, that's positive for being at risk for um, at-risk drinking. In the past 90 days, how many times have you had more than three drinks on any one occasion or had binge drinking, another way of saying that? Um, if you have had more than one time, that's also at-risk drinking. So again, not alcoholism, but at-risk drinking, which is sort of when you think of like a pyramid of like non-drinkers on the bottom, alcoholics on the top, at risk would be like a step right below that. So um, it's just something to keep an eye out for. If you think that you have a problem, we have a really great phone number to give you here. We're actually gonna post it on all of our social media so you can find this more easily, but SAMHSA or SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They've got a 24 hours a day free hotline you can call, it's confidential. Um, every day of the year. It's 1-800-662-HELP or 4357. They have English and Spanish services. Um, and it's for people, um, either individuals or family members who are facing both mental and substance abuse disorders. Um, it'll give you free resources to local treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations, um, and also a lot of written information. It's all free. So lots of helpful information. We hope this was a helpful episode. If you've loved this episode of The V Word, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, at VWordPod, on Instagram, at VWordPod, and send us an email, thevwordpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening!